the inside. She got the scoop on the ones to watch, on the ones that's hot. No one can do it quite like Caroline. Caroline. No one can do it quite like Caroline. It's time for Caroline. This episode was such a treat for me to get to interview Tara Mackey. She's an amazing two-time best-selling author. She has gone through so much. She was born into a household where her mother was on drugs. She was put on to 14 different prescription pills as a child to try to help her, I guess, cope. But really, no one ever diagnosed her, what was really going on with her. And so she got herself off of every single one of these medications as an adult, and she wrote books about how to live naturally and how all of these drugs are basically killing us and all of the harmful side effects of just putting yourself on a prescription drug. So her book is amazing. She's so soulful. She leads us through a visualization exercise where you really tap into what your true calling is. She is an angel from God, and this interview was amazing. Get excited for Tara Mackey. Here she is. Tara Mackey. Yes, girl. <laughs> what is up beside you changing the world? What's up? You know, I think that's that's good for now, right? <laughs> I mean, I think that's a big, uh, big task that you've taken on and you're doing it so amazing. And I'm so grateful that you have like flowed into my podcast world because I have in the past couple of years gotten so obsessed with the food industry and just trying to understand our food and all of the crap that's in our food and all these extra products and like, where is it all coming from? Are we eating real stuff? And then take that one more step to medications. Are these medicines that people are giving us, are they really helping us? Or are they just like band-aiding something and then causing a greater problem somewhere else? Like, I feel like, are we really being taken care of out there and you have done all of the research and just have you've written two books which is insane and you have a new book out called wild habits which is talking about how you beat 14 illnesses is that right 14 illnesses yeah with plants and nature and natural everything natural so how did how did you get to the point where you're on 14 medications and how then did you decide to go on this wild journey to go all natural when really that could have been super scary because doctors were probably telling you that that's the last thing you should do. (laughs) Only my whole life. (laughs) (laughs) So I was born on drugs. My mother did drugs the entire time she was pregnant with me, which I feel like is becoming more and more ubiquitous. So my mother did um, hard drugs. She did cocaine, mostly she did cocaine in the cab on the way to the hospital to give birth to me. So, and then she drank and she smoked cigarettes her whole pregnancy with me. So, um, that didn't affect, that didn't, that didn't cause any like birth defects or anything. Uh, I can't say so. No. I mean, I was in, I had to do detox for the first two weeks after I was born. Are you serious? Yeah. I was in the NICU, no bonding for me. Um, so I no, I had tubes up my nose first thing when I came out. I mean, I wasn't, I had, toxic things in my system when I was born. So it, it kind of started there. And then my mother raised me as a single parent and she um, got into heroin when I was five. And wow. Then, who, who was raising you when she was doing all this? She was, I was. So were you ever worried for your safety or anything? I can't, you know, I feel like when you're that young and you don't know any differently, like, you know, you're raised by neighbors and the kids down the block and yourself and the guy at the store who sees you get cigarettes for your mom every other day with a little note from her and you're five years old. Like those are the people who are raised, you know, my grandparents were huge. I mean, they ended up getting custody of me, um, two years later because my mother overdosed on heroin in front of me when I was six. And, and I think that's when they truly realized that, okay, yeah, no, she's not in a safe environment. Like this is all that. I saw that. That was, yeah, I saw that. I called them. How does a six year old Um, process that? What do you even know what's happening? I didn't know what a heroin overdose was, but I definitely knew something was wrong when your parent doesn't wake up and their eyes are rolled in the back of their head that's one of the first feelings I remember is just being really scared that I, she was dead, you know, cause you don't know the, you know, you kind of, I saw 
like a dead bird and like yeah. few, and like ants and stuff and you kind of know when something's not responding to you um it's something is wrong and so i i uh pulled out a chair from the t- kitchen and stood on and reached the phone and called my grandparents and they came first before the cops and before the ambulance um, and they ended up calling 911 but and took me out of that situation before the cops and the ambulance showed up because had the cops shown up and it was just me there or they were there with me, they immediately would have taken me into foster care. And they knew that. So yeah. they, they got me out of the situation, which was, you know, probably one of the smartest things they ever did aside from right after that apply for custody of me. Because I think that's when it really occurred to them of like, oh, she's like here by herself, like in like living house, alone, living alone. And her mom is like doing this all the time. It's not like a one time thing. And she's making herself dinner by standing on the same stool that she used to, you know, call us on the phone, things like that, I think just started really kind of slowly hitting them, especially when I started living with them and going to therapy. And they asked me like, you know, where did you sleep and where are your toys and like things just, or where's the money we gave you for Easter? Like, and they just kind of started to realize that she wasn't taking care of me anymore. You know, it was about drugs and alcohol. It wasn't about her child. And, um, a judge granted them custody of me when I was seven. So they wow. raised me with kind of the hope that, um, that my mother would get her act together. And, uh, and that's their daughter. That's their daughter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Their first daughter, their first child, the reason that they are married. Um, <laughs> cause they had her in Ireland back in the day. Oh, are um, your, are you, are your descendants from Ireland? Yeah. Oh yeah. That whole side of my family, my mom's from Ireland. Um, that's why my last name is Mackie. It's my mom's last name. Okay. So yeah. Um, and so my mother was in and out of jail and rehab my whole childhood. And then finally when I was 10, she got sober for about a year at a, at an outpatient rehab facility. And then she came to live with me and my grandparents. And she was, How was so- that? It was amazing, actually. I mean, it was... Was there some healing that happened? Did you have to talk about some stuff? Or how oh, did you... Yeah. <laughs> you did? There was a lot of healing. There was a lot of nights out. There was a lot of her actually finally really trying um, in a way I had never seen because she really had never been sober in my memorable life. And I always was a little nostalgic for the you know, the teenage version of her that my grandparents always talked about before she started drinking and stuff. So you never had known that side ever. I never got to see that. She always had been drinking and always had been doing drugs my entire life. And so spending time with her sober was definitely very interesting because I got to see her for who she truly was. And, um, what did you discover? She's, you know, she's an amazing person. She's a great artist. She's very compassionate. She's very kind. I think kindness is, she's, she's incredibly selfless. You know, I think a lot of addicts really are. They, they, they drink and they do drugs because they get down on themselves. They feel guilty about how they treat other people. And they really, they have a hard time with self-forgiveness and she, and a lot of the kindest, most gentlest people are like that. And she really is. She's a really great person. Um, That's awesome. And yeah, how no, awesome for you, though, to be so open to healing with her in that way, you know, as totally. a child, especially because I'm sure that was not easy. Wow. Yeah. What a start to your life <laughs> in this world. Dang, Just a little girl. bit. Just a little bit. So I was seeing a therapist this whole time, too. And that was definitely helpful because having somebody in your life go, you know, it's not your fault what your mother's doing. Did you, you feel like it was your fault? You every child of an alcoholic or a drug addict feels like it's their fault because you do something wrong or you do something right and your parent goes and drinks and does it doesn't change anything. So how can you not internalize that, right? Okay. And so I think when you see a therapist when that's your situation, they they have to really kind of hammer into you that this is not your fault, especially when you're the only child and there really is no like you can't even mentally go blame someone else, you know. You have no one um, to talk to about it. You're alone. And yeah. you're also learning all of what's happened, like you're plopped into this world, like you're learning everything and you don't know how to interpret what's happening and you don't have anyone to talk to about it. Right. Exactly. And you know, I, I went to a very small private school with literally 10 other kids and all of their families were completely nuclear, like not even divorced. Like, I mean, everybody had just like happy smiling, like just, and you know, in Catholic school and everyone's just kind of putting on this whether it was a front or whether it was real, like it, it wasn't relatable to my experience at all. And so the only, the only things I really saw as a kid that were relatable to my experience was when I was watching Oprah 
you know, or listening to Tony Robbins, like, because yeah. those are the only people in the early nineties who were speaking to things like this on a, on a public platform in a large way to millions. That is true. Do yeah. do you feel like, and I'm not, I want to get back to this, but do you feel like social media, although social media, I want to talk to you about that too, can be like a downside. Do you feel like that is one of the positive things about social media is it gives so many people a voice to speak about these things that maybe we wouldn't have heard before? Totally. I, and I love it. And I think it gives a lot of people a lot of inspiration to get better in a way that, yeah, we only had one or two things before. And if you couldn't afford those, the box cassette from Tony Robbins or a TV, who were you listening to? You know, And people still thought that was kind of crazy back then too. Oh yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. It was like, like off the cuff. Wasn't happening. <laughs> it wasn't the movement yet. No, no, not yet. We were still in our little uh, bubble, <laughs> but uh, but I really feel like so. My mother actually relapsed in front of me when I was twelve, and then when I was thirteen is when I was put on break. Like, a month after that was when I saw a child psychiatrist for the first time and was put on my first drug, which was a mood stabilizer called lithium. So they put you on a drug at fourteen. 13. 13. And what is that? Is that a heavy drug? It's a heavy duty adult dosage of a mood stabilizer that they normally, at the time, what was interesting at the time was that this was, you know, early, early 2000s. And they were just starting to give these adult dosages of drugs to children. Even though at the time they were not allowed to test them on children. So only in the last like five years have they been legally allowed to test these drugs on children, but they've been giving adult dosages of drugs to children for at least the last 20 years. So you had no choice when you were, you're born into drugs in your system, then not your fault at all that you are in this world, that's just what you're born into. And then you get put on drugs, like out of your control. Totally. Wow. Wow. Okay. So what happened when that happened? Well, my grandparents, I don't think even maybe to this day, still don't see the irony of, of paying a therapist for many, many years to help me stay off drugs and then paying another therapist to put me on drugs. Um, But I, got put on another drug the next year. So lithium can inhibit your ability to do math and science, which is what it started to do for me. I started to go from being a complete straight A student to getting, I brought one C plus home on one math test. And my grandparents were like, what the fuck? So they brought me into my psychiatrist and he was like, this is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. No. This is you very serious. And they put me on a drug called methadate. Are they keeping you on the other one too? Yeah. Oh yeah. What? And your yeah. tiny little baby precious I body? I was like 80 pounds. Oh. Like I'm only 105 pounds now. Like what? Oh my gosh, you're a tiny person. Precious like, body was just yeah. being pumped with all these drugs. It makes me want to cry. Oh no. <laughs> I know. I'm so sad. I'm so sorry. I know. No, I want to go back and hug 13 year old. I know. I want to hug her too. <laughs> I want to hug seven year old me always. I'm just like, oh man. God, you've been such a fighter, Tara. Oh, like, thanks, oh you are crying. Oh, like, it really like makes me emotional. Like I'm sorry. Oh, your crowd is so innocent. I know, and it's so weird when you don't have a choice. Sorry. You don't even. No, it's okay. It's all right. But you don't even realize you don't have a choice, and that's why when I talk to parents who yes. are like, they want to put my five-year-old on ADD medication. No. I'm like, listen, here's the thing, and it's not even the health. It's not even anything. It's it. It is this. It's the choice. It's the fact that when you when you're five and somebody tells you to take a pill, you don't have a choice. And if you really think that your kid needs this because he needs to graduate from kindergarten or she needs to do better in a subject, if they ever regret being on this medication, and trust me, they probably will, they're not going to blame themselves. They're going to blame you. And so if you just let them go through challenges, they have to blame themselves and then they have to overcome that. And they're not going to rely on a pill and they're not going to rely on you or someone else to solve that for them. But the second you start medicating your children, you start holding them back because you stop giving them a choice. That's my larger message. Like That's what I want to really, really, really bring home to parents because when you're a child, you don't have a choice. You don't, and you're, you don't, you're not even mentally capable of knowing that you have a choice because a doctor is involved. And you and don't when, know anything. Yeah, who you do don't you know anything? And you, you don't even know who to trust. Like, yeah. 
No, 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 no. And and what's weird is I think every 13-year-old can be diagnosed as bipolar. Oh, That's my That's the gosh. thing. Yes. Like, I mean, I wasn't even exhibiting mood swings or any, or really any like tickoffs of the disorder. And, but they not do a quick little like, background check and just like examine what's happening in your life and be like, Oh, she's probably going through some shit at home. And that's what's happening. I like to say I probably had shitty life disorder and they misdiagnosed <laughs> it as bipolar <laughs> disorder. <laughs> Um, <laughs> because no, they did. They knew exactly what was going on. And even they when I got, put you on all that? even when my grades started slipping, you'd think, well, maybe it's because she's been through something traumatic or maybe it's because she's on this medication that may after a while start inhibiting her learning capabilities. But, but no, every single time something was wrong, and, and this is every doctor. First, it was my psychiatrist, but then I went to see doctors for other things for my scoliosis. For I got diagnosed with arthritis. I got diagnosed with anxiety. And every single one of them, their first line of defense was pills. I don't Why know if it's that? because I had shitty health insurance. I don't know because actually I didn't at the time because when I was a kid, I mean, it, it definitely became more prevalent when I you know, was on state health insurance, of course, what are they going to do? They don't want to take any time to see you because you're not even paying to be there. So they're just going to give you the quickest, easiest solution. But I don't understand how it started when I was under my grandparents' insurance, which was like really good at the time because my grandparents worked for the airlines. And um, and it was every single doctor I saw just here's a pill. And I think it was just becoming a more prevalent part of the culture at the time. If you really look at the drug statistics, when I started getting prescribed drugs is when they started prescribing everybody drugs. They went so from- So they never unprescribed the old ones. They just kept adding on. So they, I did get switched from lithium to a drug called Lamictal, but I stayed on Lamictal for the next eight and a half years. And I never switched drugs because I really- the honest truth was because I didn't feel any really that much different on the new drug and I didn't want to get switched to something else. What are they trying to, to cure in you with all That's this? Kind of what I was wondering the whole time was like, <laughs> what, what is the on? final destination here? Like, <laughs> yes. I don't really get it. Like, you're just what, a kid. Like, what I are they trying you for? I am not. Because you sure. saw your mom overdose in front of you, so they're going to put you on heavy drugs also? <laughs> I mean, that, that seemed to be so ironic. the train of thought, right? I know it's so ironic and there's so many ironic parts to it with the fact that my grandparents went along with it when drugs were the cause of this whole thing, right? The fact that like the doctors didn't connect what I was going through, even physically, right? So now I know when I'm more stressed or anxious or something's going on or I don't have control over what's happening, which was like my whole life as a child and young adult, I'm in a lot more pain, right? And so to get diagnosed with arthritis as a child or as a, a teenager and not have a doctor go like, are you going through anything stressful or traumatic in your life? How much do you exercise? What are you eating? How do you have a good mentor? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Do you have anyone in your life who's supporting you? Do you are you getting enough, like, are you movement? able to talk about your feelings to anyone? <laughs> exactly. They never asked me any personal questions about my life. And that's where our Why health starts, not? right? Why not? What is that disconnect between, and I feel very passionate about this, I've not lived your experience in the slightest, but I feel very passionate about why when you go to the doctor, is it not a well-being experience? It's not for your whole well-being. It's like nothing about it treats your whole well-being. It's, it's, and so I have a biology background. Of course, I ended up getting into psychology and biology in college because why not? Let's explain my own neuroses, right? What were you like um, as a kid? What was your personality like with all this going on? What did the drugs make you like? You know, I mean, I went from being pretty outgoing and really happy and unstoppable to being pretty fucking jaded and melancholy. Like, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> like, yeah. And I think any friends I had around that time will be uh, very quick to say that that's probably the truest thing I've ever fucking said about myself is like, honestly, I mean, it really like it changes you. And, but for me to answer your previous question, like it's part of the education system. They don't teach doctors when you're going through the education system of pre-med and medical school, 
they don't teach you about mind-body connection. They teach you about the drugs, but they don't even teach you about how the drugs really work to treat the ailments they're designed for, like the SSRIs or the anti-anxiety medications or the mood-stabilizing medications. The mood-stabilizers especially, because once I really started to look into it after I came off my drugs and started um, researching natural healing and really wanted to get into the science of why it worked so I could explain it to myself and to other people and then eventually used it in my books. But I came across things like lithium, the first drug I was put on that we've talked about, is a GABA inhibitor. And so what it's GABA. It suppresses your, the GABA in your brain. And GABA is a neurotransmitter found in all of us that's responsible for your mood balance. And so if the drug they're giving you is inhibiting the ability for your GABA to be transported through your brain, how is it helping to stabilize your mood exactly? Interesting. I, I don't get it. Like there's so many like, things. That's, I really that's, started to look into the chemical makeup of it. I was like, how is this possible that they like have approved these things when they're so counterintuitive to the science of how your body actually works. And another thing too, one doctor's opinion decided you should be on that pill. Like yeah. what if you would have walked in on a different day with a different doctor? He could have put yes. you on a different pill. And doctors, like one yes. person's opinion are human. Like that's yes. what I think people don't realize. They have preconceived notions about things before you walk into their office, just like every other human. They judge people. They're trying to like put you into a human. Yeah. Disease. They are trying to label you when you yes. walk into their office. Like that is their job is to find a label for what's wrong with you. Yes. They're not, I mean, unless you literally are going in there and they ask why, and you say, I'm just here for a checkup. If you go in there saying anything is wrong, it is their job to go through a checklist in their mind until they find the box you fit in. That's and, then write you a pill. and then they can write you a pill. They have a pill for that. I promise you they do. <laughs> um, because, and I, you know, we, we don't have to maybe get into the pharmaceutical industry. I don't tend to a lot. I have some eye-opening statistics in my book, but here's the one I really want to share, which is that in 2016, Walgreens sold enough drugs, pharmaceutical drugs, 900 million, almost a billion prescription drugs for every man, woman, and child in this country to be on three medications at the same time. That's babies, infant babies included, literally every single person that exists in the United States of America could be on three drugs at the same time based on just what Walmart sold or Walgreens sold in 2016. What's mind blowing about that is that it's just one pharmacy. Right. Wow. So there's enough for every person to be on three pills, but that's only one. One pharmacy from just Walgreens. And Wow. That's so if you are wondering if we are over-medicated, I think that is your answer. <laughs> We're clearly over-medicated because I'm not taking any of these pills anymore. I haven't taken a single solitary pharmaceutical drug in seven years. And so who is taking all of these pills? How anybody is, I mean, somebody, well, because I mean, I have gone to the doctor for no reason at all. And I'll get written a prescription just because I feel like weird, you know, like I, like a couple of times I've gone and I just like, you feel like something's off and they just give you something, you know? Yeah. Or maybe their energy changes your response because they're not in a good mood and you have right. to be a sympathetic person. And like, it's just, it's so. And then that doctor writes you a pill that you're on for eight years. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And then it's really hard once you're labeled as a child, especially this is another little warning to parents who may be thinking about labeling or medicating their children um, just to make it easier and fit them into a box is that once you are put in that box, as you can't a child, get out. You cannot get out of that box. That is the rest of your life. And I guarantee you because, and I can tell you because I did it and I've seen so many other people do it, especially when you're an impressionable child and you're told something is wrong with you you will take on the symptoms of that illness eventually. It may not be the next week. It may not be the next year, but after 20 months or three years or five years or 10 years, you will absolutely feed into your diagnosis. Because why wouldn't you? Because they told you you had it. 
They told you you had it. They tell you that every single time you go back and guess what? Every single day when you take a pill, you are reiterating to your body that something is wrong with you. Every single time you're proving to yourself mentally and physically that something is wrong with you or you would not take that pill. And so when you don't give a kid a choice and a kid is just taking a pill every single day, even if they're getting better, you're reiterating to them that something is wrong with them to begin with. And so I really, really caution people before they start medication or before they put their children on medication that you really consider all of these, these things because this is not what a doctor is going to tell you. It's like, you know, how they say like fast fashion, how people are just like with all this fast fashion and like overseas are doing all these, it's like so polluting and it's so terrible for the industries because like the slave workers and all that. I feel like it's fast medication also. It's like you walk in, let me speed date you really fast, give you medication, walk out. It's just like a conveyor belt. And I feel like it's so accepted that parents are just like, oh, it's no big deal. Yes, I agree. And I, I'll tell you a little story. I don't have to go to the doctor that often anymore. I go in once a year for my checkup. She knows I'm totally natural. She makes fun of me all the time and tells me to eat in and out. She's great. Um, <laughs> you, all, you eat all natural too? I, I try, you know, and in and out's actually great. It's grass fed. Yeah. It's not that bad for you. Um, yeah. but that's why she tells me to go do it. She's like, if you're going <laughs> to eat fast food, you know where you can eat like, every single time. She's trying to get me to Animal style, get Animal it style. All day. Oh, good girl. Ooh, get some French fries on that burger. <laughs> Sponsored by In and Out. Um, no, <laughs> yes. just kidding. So, um, oh my God, no, I completely forgot what we were talking about. You said you go to your doctor. You're all natural, grass fed. Right. Right. So I go to her because the doctor had before her, um, like four years into this journey, haven't taken one pharmaceutical drug for anything. Haven't taken a Tylenol. Haven't taken an aspirin. My adoptive father, my grandfather passed away and I came back home and I saw my doctor for my checkup, my last doctor. And she's like, oh, what's going on? How are you? Et cetera. And so I told her I just got back from, you know, my dad's funeral and she was like, oh, you know, and she literally immediately got out a prescription pad and was like, you know, I have something for that. And it's not supposed to be taken long-term, but it can really help you. Like, just take it for two weeks and let me know how you feel. Just because you're sad? Like, hasn't even looked me in the face. Has literally just started writing this prescription while she's telling me this information. Just because you're sad? Just because I wasn't even sad. Like, I mean, I like it. Of course I was sad. Like, like it was like a natural just died. But like, I wasn't in her office crying. Like I was just answering her question of like, oh, what's going on? What are you going? Where have you been? Like, cause I think I told her, like, I just, you know, unpacked my stuff or whatever this morning. And like, it just, got, you know, I ended up telling her what, what happened. And it was so weird how instantly, and PS, a regular medical doctor, not a psychiatrist, right? Not a therapist. Okay. And I have friends who are regular medical doctors who feel completely comfortable writing people prescriptions for antidepressant drugs because quote unquote, they, you know, if they work the way they're supposed to work, I, I feel comfortable putting a patient on this. And it's like, what, why? Like, first of all, you shouldn't feel comfortable putting someone on that just out of the blue without like a, why can't we just feel things? Like, why is it so bad to feel pain? Why is it so bad? To, like you were saying, like, if you don't let your child work through these things naturally, like, why is it so wrong? You, like the world, there's a lot happening in the world. It's not a, it's not a yeah. perfect world. We got to learn how to deal with it. You can't just it's like true. try to numb it out with a drug. Yep. And it's weird because the drug doesn't even make it easier for you to process anything, right? If anything, it holds your brain back from being able to understand the reality of what's going on and therefore really be able to process it in a way that's healthy and moves your life forward. Like, So it's actually terrible on all accounts. It's terrible on all accounts. And I'm not saying it's not necessary. Like, here's the thing. Here's the precursor. Like I, I've been off these drugs for long enough to know I never needed them. My question is how many other people don't need them? I'm not saying they're not necessary. I'm not saying that people don't benefit from this at all blanket statement across the board. But like we've talked about, we're clearly over-medicated. We're clearly medicating children and we're clearly medicating people without in-depth diagnoses. So how many people can we 
help? That's my real question of like, are people getting the real help they need from being on these pills? And if they're not, let me give you the help that I desperately needed when I was on them and I happened to use to come off them. You don't have to do that. That's just my story. But like, honestly, I needed this, especially the method in wild habits, the wild method. Like I fucking needed this so badly in my best moments and my worst moments and the moments where I decided that you know, I was going to come off all these drugs and the moments I decided I was going to go on them to begin with, like I needed this because it would have really, really informed my decisions in a way that nothing else had done. And I really, my greatest mission really is to help people before they're at their wits end. When did this become your soul's mission? Because that's really the point of my podcast is I'm all about soulful living, finding your passion and your calling, and also inspiring the everyday woman. Because I feel like a lot of women especially get stuck and they just get like overwhelmed by life and then they can't figure out how to live a soulful life and how to find a purpose and add meaning into the world. Because everyone has something they can add. And oftentimes, your case in point, it's your greatest hardship that leads to your greatest blessing. Mm -hmm. But how did this become your soul's work? When did you decide to like turn it and be like, I'm done. Like, fuck this. I'm out. I attempted suicide. You did. March of 2011. You, and and I saw the you? stars to, to show for it. I still have to look at that every day and go, I'm never going to fucking do that again. And I'm going to make sure nobody does this. To what themselves. got you to that point? Were you just hopeless? Oh my God. I was hopeless. I was helpless. I was um, at a job that I hated. I was overworked. I was in a city that that depressed me. I was in a relationship that was abusive in every way you can think of. Like he'd literally tried to kill me. I had a restraining order against him and I was still with him. Like I was making all the fucking wrong decisions, but all it, the wrong decisions. Because it wasn't your fault. You didn't know. Like no one My family was like encouraging me to be with that person. That's what Why? I'm saying. And I don't mean to blame them in no. any way shape, or form. Here's the thing. It's just when you come from a pattern of dysfunction, it's really hard to see the light, right? Because the people who are supposed to care about you the most, they don't know how to live. And then we end up, I talk in my book about how it's just easier to be the victim. We end up blaming our parents for our shortcomings and like, oh, they never taught me anything and I don't know how to manage money and I don't know how to have a relationship. And while that might be true, like you're not your parents. You don't have to live the that life your family is telling you to live or repeat the same mistakes just because nobody taught you any better. Like if anything, this is your opportunity. If nobody sets standards for you, guess what? Set them for yourself. And that's what I really started. Like after my suicide attempt, like in that moment, I really realized that- You want to follow through with it or was it an accident that it didn't follow through? I I wanted to follow through with it and my my abusive boyfriend at the time who soon became my ex within a few days like showed up at my apartment in the middle of it and um I think that was a divine blessing in disguise because like holy shit that I mean yeah like it was Honestly, the and I, I realized that even though every single thing in my life had said no, like a force outside of me had said yes. And I needed to just accept that and continue to bless that up and be grateful for that because I, my best friend had taken her own life just a few months before, which was part of the catalyst to the this kind of downward spiral. Yeah. I mean, it not only, I mean, you see, when you see suicide statistics, you'll see when, you know, it, it becomes this weird domino effect where one person does it and then other people around them sometimes end up doing it. It's almost like young. they, it's almost like, well, here's my escape. Okay. Someone else did it. So maybe I can do it too. Is that well, how it you starts do? to put thoughts in your head yeah. about, you know, she was one of the smartest, most intelligent, most incredible people that I knew. One of my best friends ever. Like I had spent more time with her than almost anyone else in my life. And I was like, well, if she thought this was the way out, like maybe it's the way, maybe it's the way. And then realizing literally what was crazy was I realized in that same moment, I realized that I'm a divine human being who's made a lot of fucking mistakes. I also realized that everybody attempts or commits suicide for the same reason, which is not that they hate their life. It's that they want to escape their pain. 
and it's a it's a permanent solution to a very, very temporary problem. And love every that. single person who does it wants to live their best life. They don't want to die. No, they just hate. They just can't figure out how to get out of this hell they're in. Correct. And you wouldn't, cause you wouldn't take the drastic steps if you were just dissatisfied with your life. You're in You're a massive desperate. amount of pain and you want to live your best life and you feel like you can't. And like there's and no hope. Why, and like there's no hope. And that's why I realized she had done it was, oh my God, she didn't want to die. She, she wanted to live her best life and she was hopeless. And all you need is hope. And I had, that's when I really started to gain hope, which is something I had not ever had in my life. What did hope look like? How did it come to you? What did it feel like? It felt like being a child. Like, a, oh, like in a good way. In a good way. Not in like a, the way that my whole childhood had been just these like fucked up traumatic memories I could never talk to anybody about. It felt like the purest parts of being a child. When you're such a child that you don't even know anything is wrong because you're living in your imagination. Yeah. And once I started to embrace that I could use my imagination for a higher purpose to manifest my dearest dreams and goals. And then I started to do that. And then it started to work. Okay. I was like, How did you find right. out about manifesting and visualizing and living your highest self? Because not everyone gets to that place. I mean, did you just wake up so much after you got to your rock bottom or how did you get into? Fuck no. So I was <laughs> like super duper science background, like hardcore, like I'd grown up Catholic, right? And then I went pretty much pendulum atheist. And then I was like somewhere in the middle where I'm like, I haven't read a self-help book in a really fucking long time. So I really, I was a hard ass New Yorker, you know, I wasn't yeah. woo-woo at all. And somebody said the word manifest to me, I probably would have laughed in their You're face. Like- like <laughs> so lame. Like, like what language are you speaking? <laughs> um, <laughs> like, okay, magic, voodoo, awesome. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, totally. But on the other hand, I was an avid reader as a kid, and I always used to pick up like books on like Wicca and like mysticism and um, books about like the saints who'd received stigmata and like all that stuff had always really intrigued me. And when I was a little kid, I used to like pray for signs from God and pray for stigmata and like just weird. I don't know if kids do this, but it was like, it definitely set me up for being interested in these things. So once I made this decision, it was really weird because I have a lot of books as anyone who maybe follows my Instagram stories and stuff can see. Cause no matter I what love your room, Instagram, you are so aw. inspiring. Everything you post, yeah. I love it. Thanks love. Um, but on my stories, like when I share pretty much any room in my house, there's books <laughs> and there's That's books awesome. on books, on books, on books. Um, Is it all like the manifesting, like self-help. Well, it's a combination. Action. So I love all different kinds of books. I love like sci-fi and fiction and oh, you're all over the place. And like, I've got like 50 copies of the Bible. Yeah. Um, I just, I love old books. Like I'm really into all different kinds of stuff. And so there was books I'd carried around with me for years that I, literally either hadn't read since I was a really little kid or just really hadn't opened. And when I opened myself up to this new idea of healing, I literally was rearranging books and they like fell off the shelf. Um, the ones that you're supposed to read? It was like, and then I read them and it was like, they spoke directly to the ailments I was facing. Like that's really? how I learned to start using turmeric for my pain and valerian for anxiety and skull cap. Do you just rub oil on or do you swallow it or? So I swallow supplements. I use tinctures um, when I want it to be really concentrated. They're concentrated. You can get them either um, in alcohol form or non-alcoholic. And they're just like concentrated versions of the herb that are liquid that you can add to teas and your drinks and your water. Um, I also take supplements. I also just use the raw ginger and turmeric and garlic and stuff just on everything in teas in salads like when i'm seasoning that stuff really does work it really worked like okay here's the thing i was on fentanyl which is killing more people in this country than any other pharmaceutical drug what right is now that? because it's a really heavy duty narcotic that is a hundred times more powerful than morphine and 10 times deadlier than heroin and here's why it takes a hundred milligrams of heroin to kill a full grown man. It only takes 10 milligrams of fentanyl. And how many milligrams are you taking a day? 
I was on the patches and I can't remember how many milligrams those were, but so that was just on you all the time. Yeah. It was just on me. You're just, just in you just seeping yeah. in you all mm-hmm. the time. Seeping in through my bloodstream. Oh yeah. Wow. So great. So I went from taking fentanyl to literally drinking turmeric tea and with like a little skullcap tincture and actually being pain-free. Here's the other thing is I'm opiate intolerant. So I would take all these, and by the way, no doctor ever told me this. I had to figure this out by vomiting, taking opiates. Like that's why they gave me the patch is because I couldn't actually swallow them. I would throw up every single time. You're like, your body's rejecting this. So we're just going to stick it on your arm. (laughs) Yep. Yep. No, seriously. They've got fentanyl lollipops. They've got, I mean, they literally do. They have fentanyl lollipops. I don't know if anyone remembers the intervention episode with the fentanyl lollipop girl. You need to Google that immediately because that shit, she literally became schizophrenic on this stuff and it's a lollipop. Wow full of painkillers. Okay. Like it's real. This sounds awful. I mean, this sounds like it can't be legal. Um, so here's the thing. I point this out in my book too. Like, is it legal? Surprisingly? Yes. But here's the thing. The pharmaceutical companies have to pay millions to sometimes billions of dollars in fees after these drugs inevitably either don't work or kill people or have crazy side effects or all of the above, right? Right now, every single state in the country is suing the company who makes fentanyl because of the overdose deaths, including Ohio. I'm not sure if they won that case. But here's the thing, like just Vioxx, for example, a drug I was on, an anti-inflammatory drug I was on in high school through college, they took it off the market. And when they took it off the market, a bunch of states sued them. The company Merck, who and is ironically, my alma mater from my college. Um, They have a dorm named after them. Uh, So they sued the Merck drug companies for, I think, $180 million. Wow. And they won. And Merck had to pay them $180 million. But it barely made a dent because Merck made $14 billion that year. Well, that's like nothing. That's nothing. It's pocket change. Yeah, it's literally 100 bucks. It's like... So they kill these people and then they basically have to pay a hundred bucks in fines and then they're allowed to just go back and do whatever the hell they were doing before. So when did you decide I'm going to write a book? Like when did you get your formula laid out? Like you had your stuff that was working for you. You're off of everything. And when did you, because you wrote a a book before Wild Habits. Wild Mm -hmm. Habits just came out. When did you decide to put it on a book? So I put it on my... And my blog first, the organic yeah, life blog. the organic life is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Yeah, theorganiclifeblog.com was my book, uh, my first blog. Well, not my first blog. I had a blog on live journal since I was like fourteen, but this was like my blog about this journey. And um, my publishing company found my blog and came to me and asked if I would write Cured by Nature. And wow. I was like, for so they real? Came to you? They came to me, yeah. Which happens, yeah. by the awesome. way, if you write a lot of content for free, eventually somebody will come and ask <laughs> if they can pay you for it. Hey, that's awesome. Hey, <laughs> it happens. And then it went on to be a bestseller. And then it went on to be a bestseller in the first week, which was crazy with this book because this book was number one new release a month before it came out. And I was like all impressed with myself last time that it was the week it came out. So, so Wild like, Habits is already like number one a week before it came out? Wild Habits was number one a month before it came out. But um, I'm so lucky book- to talk to you. You're such an <laughs> incredible author. Oh, thanks, babe. No, I was like really surreal to just go look. It was right after I announced. It's that- about damn time that you get your reward, you know? <laughs> Thank you, love. <laughs> I appreciate that. Because <laughs> I literally like, I mean, it, you know, I yeah. made this decision to change, but it wasn't like anybody, you know, encouraged it for a while. Like, it wasn't going to go through that, like, like hell boot camp for your whole life. And then you could write this book. You're like, here, because of my, all of my pain, I can now write this amazing book. But I mean, I guess it is now worth it because you've turned it into something so beautiful. It's totally worth it. It's totally worth it. Do you feel that way? I do. I do. Oh God. Yeah. No, I have, I understand. It's so weird to come to a place where you recognize why every single shitty thing in your life happened to you. Especially all that stuff. Like most people can't get over that kind of trauma. Like most people aren't, aren't like you. I feel like. Yeah. No, most people are not like me. And not that I'm like, so no, not to say like, I'm so great. I'm just saying most people are not like me. Like they don't, you know, it's, it's what, and that made me feel very lonely for a really long time. That's why I say it is that I, I really 
was coming from a place where most people are not like me and that's a bad thing. And honestly, the book and the point of the book is really just switching your mentality and to switch it to that of like, most people are not like me and to own that and to have that empower you as a person and empower what you're doing. I mean, it, that's a 180. That's a true 180 of like really feeling totally alone because people don't get you to really being like, I don't give a fuck if people get me. And then people really get you because they feel the same way. Yes. Did you, how did you feel when you wrote, obviously this book is, we'll, we'll talk about this one too, but when you wrote that first book and all of your trials and tribulations came out, it became a number one bestseller. And then people are coming to you probably saying like, holy shit, thank you for writing this book. You are speaking directly to me. You're like, oh my God, like you have changed my life. Like how did that moment feel to go from all of the darkness to all of a sudden you are a beacon of light for people? That's why I do this. I don't do this. Doesn't pay me money. This doesn't like, this is not a lucrative career. I do this because for that, that's my reward is because like I needed that so badly. And all I wanted to do was give that to someone else. Like that's true happiness for me is, is the altruism of like, cause you know, the pain. Yeah. Cause I know, and I know what it feels like to feel like you're not going to get over it. And I know the fear and I know the fear of the future. And I know the fear of not having hope or not having anyone um, there to support you. And here's the thing. Like I, I also want to let people know that once you get to the point where you can support yourself, the right people who truly do support you will show up. And I don't mean support yourself financially or any of these things that support people your about. vision, your cause, your purpose, support your vision, support the core of what you really care about. Because once you really start doing that and living that the people who get that will show up and then you'll find the true support. You've always been banging your head wondering where the fuck it is. That's where it shows up is when you start living it, other people can't help but respond to that. And Amen I feel so lucky. <laughs> like Amen I feel that. Yeah, I mean I feel so lucky that I did put in the self-work because now I have the true support I was looking for the whole time. So talk to me about and I feel like I want to it's men and women but I primarily like to focus on women because I just feel like women are superheroes but a lot of times we lose our capes sometimes. Yes, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> you know? Really like how does a woman who feels trapped, you know, like in her own life, say she's like got kids, she's a single mom, she's working hard and she just like can't figure out how to own her life, how to feel that soulful living, how to get out of this grind. Like how do you tell people over overcoming your struggles and, and to relate to other struggles? Like how do people get out of this place where they're stuck, but all they want to do is like you said, your best friend is live their best life, but you can't because you feel stuck. What is your advice to people who are in that situation right now in all areas? So that's why I invented the wild method. And that's why I wrote the new book. Is Talk to me about the wild method and the new it's, book. It can get you out of exactly what we're talking about. I have that story of a, a mother of two who really just didn't know what to do, two picky toddlers, home every day, husband's a doctor, like never, you know, never home. And she, um, she used the wild method. And honestly, and I've used it over and over and over and over again, depending on what I'm going through, because it applies to so many things. So I would say to that, that mother, that person that doesn't know what the next step is, or even what tomorrow may look like, the wild method comes in extremely handy. So WILD is an acronym. The W stands for willingness, right? You need to have the willingness to acknowledge that something is not working, that you are unhappy, why you're unhappy, and what, what would make you happy instead. And then you need to have the intuition. And that might take a little soul searching. Sometimes it's people might take not a have, little soul searching. It's especially if you're in such a rut, you might not even know what would make you happy. Exactly. So you need to use your intuition. The next step and the I stands for intuition is to use your intuition to ask yourself what brings you joy. When's the last time you laughed your ass off? Who can you spend your time around that'll make your life better? Who truly supports you? Who can you call who is going to make your life better? What time can you get up in the morning? What can you do for your children so that they're not clinging on to you every morning? Um, and then the next step is L stands for love. You know, you need to use the love, like the self-love really to give yourself the space 
to ask yourself these questions and then implement the answers into your life. And then the D stands for discipline. You need to do that over and over and over again until it becomes a new habit. And that's what I feel like so many people don't realize is, and you touch on this so well, just like through your Instagram and like I checked out your blog and watching you do videos and stuff. It, you are so good at being intentional and living intentionally. And I feel like so many people miss that major, major, major thing that is really what makes people happy. Because people will look at you and they're, they're going to be like, you are so beautiful. You're so happy. How do you have happiness? But it is an intentional choice that takes discipline every day. You have to train yourself. You have to train yourself, just like you've trained yourself to think the other way. People think that they haven't trained themselves to think negatively. You absolutely have. And you can use the same power that's gotten you wherever you are right now to get you to wherever you want to be. I say that you know, for any circumstance, whether you're at the worst possible place, or you're kind of somewhere mediocre, or you're at the top of your game and you just want to get better, like you can use your past to propel your future. You don't have to use it as a jail sentence. How do you change that thinking? How do, how, what do you, what is your technique for, I guess is it, it's the wild method, but when it's you- It's the wild method. You need to be willing to change. I mean, like literally so any, anytime I get stuck, anytime I catch myself, I'm like, I'm not using the method because if I was, I would be willing to change. I'd be using my intuition. I'd be doing something self-loving and I would know I was doing it because I would be doing it over and over again. Yeah. And so every single time, you're not doing something self-loving and you're not doing something self-serving in a way that's really going to help you. Um, you just need to come back to the method. And that's, that's for me been, and it's been incredible for me to watch it change so many people's lives from people who are getting, getting over childhood trauma to people who just want to start exercising to my friends who are looking for new jobs and can't figure out how to get out of this rut. There's so many exercises in the book too that I mean, we'd be here for seven hours if I went through all of them. I know. But like, I'll I just... talk to you for the rest of my life. Like, I never <laughs> stop talking to you. But I know you have things to do. So, no, it's all good. No, but I just want to explain that there are exercises. I don't say this like you know as a blanket statement. There are many exercises in the book, and I went through one at my my book launch party in San Diego yesterday, and people were crying because it's a visualization exercise that will, if you have any trouble figuring out what your passion or what the the thing that you're here to do is, I have visual visualization exercises in the book that will bring you right there. I mean, into that moment and you'll know immediately and you'll know how to get there. Is there, is it, is it a long process or can you tell me how to do it? I can tell you how to do okay, it. How do you, you do, do it? it right I now? love visualizing. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Let's do it right now. Okay. okay. So okay. let's close our eyes. Okay. And everyone listening, y'all do this too. Y'all do, do this right together. now. <laughs> your accent is so cute by the way oh my god, oh my god. <laughs> Thank you. I don't even know what it is it's like a, a small oh gosh hodgepodge <laughs> help I can't speak <laughs> you're good okay we're gonna close our eyes okay okay and we're gonna see ourselves in a theater like a movie theater looking okay. at a blank screen it's totally black and now on the screen, you appear, and in the background is your dearest dream and goal. So you are doing the thing that is the most close to your heart, the thing that seems the most and craziest, almost unachievable, but you know it's what you're put here to do. Now somebody comes out from the side with a microphone and asks you how you got here. And you take them through from this very moment right now to the moment that they showed up and asked you the question. They thank you and kind of disappear into the background. The background disappears and it's just you up there again. Really feel the moment. 
not just for a minute, but like try to carry it with you for the rest of the day. Perfect. You That's know awesome. Exactly what you're put here to do and exactly how to get there. And you kind of just have to figure it out really fast. Like, cause when I think about what my exact purpose is, it's kind of like a little wide, but when you have to like put it into one thing, you have to figure it out really fast. You have to condense it. Yeah. A you little have to bit. condense it, which is great yeah. because I'm and like, you have I to like really to feel it. Uh, cause others within the same category, I like to do several things, but like it made me think about my one that I love the most. Yeah, exactly. So it should pinpoint and then all the other things you're doing around it or things you're doing now that bring you joy should be things that really support it and that that would allow you to continue to do if you really wanted to, but that moment should be yours. Tara, you're amazing. I like to leave every I like to leave every interview with leave your light, but you are just pure light. Everything you have said is light and just amazing. Aww. Amazing. So I feel honored that I got to chat with you, but I like to wrap up with just leave some inspiration for all of those who are following along with you, who have, who hear your story, who resonate with it. What do you want them to know just about anything? Like, what do you want to tell people? Like just, if you had one blanket thing that you just want to like, this is what you need to know. What is it? I want people to know that they can work hard for 50 years and not be able to accomplish what they can accomplish in five years as long as they have the right tools. How do you get the right tools? Well, books like Wild Habits give you the right tools to get on a path. I'm not saying it's the only tool, but I really hope it becomes a great tool that you use to get you to other tools that will get you to where you're meant to go. So does Wild Habits, what is the, what is the, the if you're going to just like summarize what Wild Habits is all about, what is it? The wild method? It's a method that helps you to propel your life in whatever your intended direction is. Amazing. Yeah. I don't purport to tell you exactly what the book is going to do for you because I feel like it's different for everyone. And that's why I just want to give people the tools because everyone's journey is completely different. And I just want people to own it and I want people to have a wild life. Have you met Oprah and Deepak yet? Uh, I've met Deepak. I met Deepak a few weeks ago. Yeah. How was that? It was amazing. He's amazing. I feel like these are like, this is like your gang. Like you're hitting all those people. I'm like, <laughs> like you're going to have Oprah's number in no time. Yay. <laughs> I love that you just said that. How's <laughs> Deepak? I love him. Deepak's amazing. He's so much more like gentle than you would like think he is. You know what I mean? He's very humble and gentle and soft-spoken and down to earth. And he's great. His daughter Malika is also amazing. Wow. Yeah. You are amazing. I am so excited I got to chat with you and I'm going to keep watching you just changing the world in the most beautiful, wild way. And thank God you're out here doing this. We need I know. Thank, thank everything. I mean, honestly, like I feel so grateful. I feel like gratitude is is top priority for me because every single day I'm just like, I get to do what? <laughs> cool. Help people become their highest self. Wonderful. Well, and you're, but you're all living in your highest self and you forget that you were like for the past before that really paid your dues to get to live in your highest self. I definitely don't. I, I thank younger me. I thank seven-year-old me and, and 70-year-old me all the time. 70-year-old me is always telling me to work harder because she wants to drink more rosé. And seven-year-old me is always telling me to slow down and appreciate what the fuck I have built for myself in these last few years. So I, there's always this small dichotomy, but I, I appreciate it. Gratitude is at the center of all of it. I have it tattooed on my wrist. Yes, girl. I love that. Because I same thing, like gratitude changes everything. Yeah, it's that's beautiful. I love that tattoo. You're amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm now obsessed with you for the rest of my life. There's nothing I can do about it. And <laughs> you're just the greatest. I'm obsessed with you for the rest of my life. Thank you so much for having me on and you know, chat me up anytime. Thank you. I already miss you. Don't don't tease me. Don't don't toy with me. Because you know I'm, I'm not girl crushing on you. I'm girl crushed on you, especially <laughs> since we just did this with video. So I'm like, damn, okay. And her accent. And she's gorgeous. Garrett, <laughs> <laughs> you are amazing. You are so, so, so amazing. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for sharing your gift to the world. Thank you for being brave. Thank you for being wild. I'm going to cry again because I just, you're a sweet little girl that you live through, like breaks my heart. But I, it's so amazing what you've done with your life and you're a true example of just you're the best. living the life. Oh, you're the best. Thank you for being in my life. 
Thank you, Tara. How amazing was that interview? Tara is so incredible. I cried a couple times and I just couldn't get over how much she's overcome, how strong she is, what a beautiful life she's turned in all of her tragedy into. Talk about turning tragedy into triumph. What an example. You guys make sure and check her out, get her book. She's everything, everything, everything. It was the best interview ever. And I'll see you guys next week.